kind of grew up in the Methodist church. We would go to church on Sundays, but it wasn't really a part of my childhood who I was. I never knew there was such a thing as a relationship. I just thought if you were a good person and you went to church on Sunday, that's all you needed to do. I left Indiana at 18 and I um, began a modeling career in Hawaii. I loved it. I mean, who doesn't want to be 20 and a professional model? I never had a problem drinking. I've never been um, addicted to anything, but I certainly enjoyed hanging out parties with Bono of U2 or um, Steven Tyler Barrow Smith, and I was certainly enjoying the lifestyle. There was a girl in my apartment complex, and she invited me that night to Bible study at her church. It was the first time that I felt like God tugged on my heart that I should go, and I also said, I'm having too much fun in my life to go to church and become a Christian. I met my husband actually at a charity event um, in 1995 in Chicago. He was a professional hockey player for the Chicago Blackhawks. We ended up getting married in 1998. We continue to live a pretty worldly lifestyle of you know, the professional athlete and his model wife. My husband was playing for the Anaheim Mighty Ducks and we were living in Orange County. A girl there who was in my multiples group invited me to her church. It was awesome. Everyone was so welcoming and loving and they had a band that was playing worship music and I was making new friends there and we just felt comfortable there. And so we just continued to go. But it was more like how I grew up. We continued to go because it's what you should, should do. But then God had a plan. He had us in the perfect place for me to begin to learn and grow and learn what it's like to have a relationship with Jesus. And it, this wasn't about anything to do with religion. After my husband retired from the NHL, we moved from his last team, Minnesota, back here to Arizona. And an old teammate of ours um, invited us to Scottsdale Bible. Week after week, just listening to Pastor Jamie, and it was just really, I felt really um, growing deeper and deeper in my understanding. Two years ago, November um, 2015, I was ready to give my life to Christ through baptism. I had told my kids, I told my family that I, this is the day I'm gonna get baptized on November 29th. Then all of a sudden I couldn't make the classes that I needed to make in order to be baptized on that date. And so I thought, well, I guess that's it. I guess I'm not getting baptized that day. So we all went and we were all in um, big service. And Pastor Jamie said something that I had never heard um, in my time going to Scottsdale Bible. And that was, he had offered up to anyone who had felt called to be baptized, get up and go out of the sanctuary and that they would baptize us after. I couldn't believe that he had actually said that and that um, God knew exactly what he was doing. But in that moment, I sat there and my son was sitting next to me. He's like, you're not going to go, Mom. Are you? You're not going to go. Because they all knew that I'd wanted to. And I said, I have to go. You know, I'm with her. I have to go. But in the moment, I was thinking, I didn't even wash my hair. I didn't even, I don't even know what I'm wearing. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't do my nails. I, I wanted to do a party. I, I didn't do any preparation. The only preparation I needed was to be obedient in that moment. My baptism day is the day I gave my life to Christ two years ago. I'm so thankful that I know Jesus Christ, that I know how to have, have a relationship with Him. I can be my best self, and I can't do that on my own. I just didn't realize that I could still be who I am in a totally different way, in a deeper way. My identity is no longer in my job, or in being a mother, or in any of these worldly roles that I play. I no longer live for the world. I live for Christ and the joy of Christ. My name is Amy Carney and this is my story.
well as our uh, other campuses and venues join us. Uh, Why don't we all bow together and pray? Father, uh, what a powerful story we just heard, a real story of uh, Amy's life and her journey from religion into a life-giving relationship with you. And God, that's what we want to talk about today as we cap off this series on looking at our internal identity uh, and talking about how our identity can be locked up in you. So I pray, God, that as we uh, open your word and talk intelligently about what it says, that, Lord, this wouldn't just be about our minds, but, God, you would penetrate our hearts and our wills and our very lives as we look to you and ask probing questions about what our lives can look like, even what our souls and personalities can look like when we come back to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. Well, I have a uh, wife, Kim, who can literally return just about anything. She can. She is a master at it. I've said for years that my wife could return a 15-year-old Honda to the original dealer and get full purchase price back. I realized this probably about 15, 20 years ago when I was uh, living in Cleveland, Ohio, pastoring there. And uh, back then, this was before the days of smartphones, I I had a PDA, some of you remember those, a personal digital assistant. It was actually called a CLIA, that was the brand, and I loved that thing, and it did everything. I tell my kids, there was a day where you had devices that do everything but be a phone. And so you had to have a flip phone and then your PDA. And I love this PDA, I kept everything on it, my appointments, my calendar, and, and all of this. And, and they weren't made as well as smartphones are today, and one day I dropped it by accident. And because it wasn't made very well, it smashed the screen into a million pieces. And I remember walking in and showing it to Kim, and she said, well, we're just going to have to return it and get you a new one. And I said, honey, you can't return it. I said, it's out of warranty, and even if it wasn't, I said, I dropped it. And it clearly says that, you know, that that all warranties are void if it's accidental or intentional abuse. And she looked at me, and she said, let me handle it. And I'll never forget the day that we went to Best Buy and I can still remember walking up to the customer service counter. Now this is a true story. I I, I started to hang a few steps back from her as we walked up to the counter because I thought, this woman has no shame, you know, and it's just... And I remember looking at the movies, you know, but I was within earshot of what was going to happen. And she walks up to the counter, and there's a kid behind the counter, you know, and, and, and she says, you know, this is a CLIA. We bought it from you like two years ago, and it's now broken, and we want another one. And the guy said what you would expect him to say. He said, well, how did it happen? And Kim doesn't lie. She said, my husband dropped it. He said, well, he goes, it's it's out of warranty and we don't cover, you know, damage that was caused by dropping it. And she said, let me see a manager. And I'm going, oh no. So the manager comes over and she does the same spiel to the manager and he says the same thing back. He says, well, we don't cover it. And again, I'll never forget what she did next. I mean, my wife is only five foot one, but my kids have learned over the years that she has the authority of Genghis Khan. And so she, she looked at this manager and she said, well, it shouldn't have broken. He only dropped it a few feet, and the glass should have been a lot tougher than that, and it's just over a year old, and you need to stand by your product and do something about this. And there was this pregnant pause, and the guy looked at her and he said, well, you know, we don't even 
carry this model anymore, but I do have a couple of refurbished ones in the back. I guess we could let you have one of those. Would that be okay? And she said, that would be fine. And at this point, I walked back up to the counter, kind of smiling, <laughs> and she looked at me and said, you're a wuss. <laughs> True story. I'm telling you, if you ever need anything returned, my wife Kim can return it for you, and she's actually taught my daughter Hannah how to do the same. You know, most of us can relate to a story like this because we might have a friend or a family member uh, that can return things and is really good at returning things. And they usually are humorous stories about how that comes about. It's actually an art form. It's like watching LeBron James or Steph Curry play basketball and they're so good at what they do and, and we're in awe at people who can do things like that. Here's the point. Jesus Christ, this is what we're going to talk about today, is also in the business of returning things, now watch this, that most people say cannot be returned. I mean, when people's marriages go south or their finances become a mess or their kids go off the deep end or their emotions go haywire and we've all had this happen, you hit a point where you think it's never gonna get like it was. It's never gonna get better again. That's where God enters in and God is really good through his son Jesus at returning things to our lives that we thought could never be returned. The Old Testament says it this way, that God is good at redeeming the years that the locusts have eaten. God is really good at doing that. And so we've been exploring in this series how each of us have been given a God-given identity. And we've noted that that identity that God has given us, it's your personality, it's the things you're good at, it's what makes you, you, is easy to get stolen in this fallen world of ours. Our image-obsessed culture, our pasts, even things we saw last week like our successes are all really good at stealing our identity. And what we're going to talk about today as we wrap this up is how Jesus Christ is the only one who can truly give us back things that are taken away by a sinful and fallen world. And to do this in light of our identity, I want to share with you today three identities, this is going to blow you away, that God has reserved for his creation. Three identities that God wants us to have, all three of them, that build one upon the other that can be ours if we choose to follow Jesus and do life God's way. And I'm going to give you all three up front so you note takers are going to fall down and call me blessed today because you get to fill in all of your blanks right here, right now. And it's this, that following Jesus offers you your creation identity, we'll explain that in a minute, your redemption identity, and then also a final or future identity. Uh, your creation identity, a redemption identity, and then a final and future identity. This is what God wants to offer us if we will but look to and trust Jesus. So notice with me uh, first that following Jesus offers you a creation, or let's personalize it, your creation identity. 
If you've been with us in this series, we've actually been talking about this all along. We've noted all along that God initially created humankind, what? In his image, and he created us not just in his image, but for a specific purpose and plan. This is actually best encapsulated in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, when it says this, worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you did create all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. So two things you want to notice being said here. First, God created all things, and that includes you and me, but don't miss that he created us according to his will and by his will, which most Bible experts take to mean that there is a purpose now, an original created purpose and reason that God made us. In other words, there's a creation identity that every human being made in the image of God has right from birth. There's a reason that you were made. There's a reason that you're on this earth. There's a reason that God brought you into this world. And it's a creation identity that we live out all throughout our lives. And some of you are saying right now, well, Jamie, big whip, a creation identity. I mean, you're telling me that anybody who's born and made in the image of God should have this. So what's unique or what's a big deal about that? Here's the big deal about that, gang. And that is that most people lose early on in life what it really means to be created in the image of God, this God-given creation identity. They do. And knowing Jesus and knowing his word allows us, it draws us back to this creation identity and the difference that it can make. I want to show you what I mean by a couple of real-life examples. I want you to think of a couple of key areas of your life, very simple areas, but I'm going to show you as you think about these how having a creation identity through following Jesus can draw us back in such a way that makes all the difference. The first thing I want you to think about is your vocational life, the work that you do. So think right now about your job, or if you're retired, the job that you had, what your vocation was and is. Remember what we looked at last week, Genesis 2.15, the creation event. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And so um, by review, we noted that what God did when he made humankind was to put him to work to get him doing something so that he could feel productive and have purpose in life. And that this idea of cultivating and keeping has been going on now for thousands and thousands and thousands of years as humankind has progressed since the time of creation. And so this is why we have doctors who discover antibiotics and then scientists who invent things like MRI machines that become agents of healings for, they're healing for millions of people. What are they doing? They're cultivating and keeping. They're discovering a creation identity that God made them to be good at and they're doing that. 
This is architects and builders who would design beautiful and functional buildings and then manufacture all kinds of materials that could withstand the ravages of time and nature. What are they doing? Cultivating and keeping. This is even business-minded people. Many of you here in Scottsdale and Phoenix are business people who develop elaborate management structures and business plans in order to keep people mobilized and moving together in the same direction and then finding a niche for each employee and giving them a chance to earn a living. What are you doing? You're cultivating and keeping in line with your creation identity. This is even athletes. I'm telling you, this touches every area of life. What do athletes do? Well, they invent a, a leather-bound oblong ball, or if you're a baseball fan, a, a spherical rawhide ball, and then they entertain the socks off, off of all of us as they play with that silly little ball. What are they doing? They're cultivating and keeping Please see, the list is endless with what we have done with this earth and all that it contains. Musical instruments, electricity, automobiles, airplanes, boats, books to read, computers, elaborate food distribution systems, manufacturing, wells, sewer systems. I mean, all the things that you see going on around you, the point is, is that as one realizes his or her creation identity and realizes that they have a couple of gifts and talents that they've been given from birth, the idea is that God wants us to run hog wild in that direction and now make something with the gifts that he has given you. A creation identity reminds you that you were made by God with gifts and passions that are to be given back to him and, and given glory to him in it, but you're to use them to better this place, help people, and even build his kingdom as a follower of Jesus. And again, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, Jamie, okay, that's a good theological explanation of like what we see going on every day, but you know, like big whip, you're just defining what already is. No, I'm not, because here's the rub. How many people do you know, now be honest with yourself, who go to work each Monday morning and do so with a deep sense of their own giftedness and abiding passion for what they do and full praise to their God and maker for gifting them to do what they do. How many people do you know that do that? See, there's not too many that do that. They go to work, they do their thing, they buy some time, they come home, they watch TV, they eat too much, and then they do the same thing the next day. And, and they're, they're doing what God asks them to do in part but, but not from a creation identity. And they're not doing it from a deep sense of who they are as one made in the image of God, looking to him and following him as they do it. You see, this is exactly what the New Testament means in Colossians 3.23 when it says this about our work. It says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. You see, we work for the man today. The only problem is the man isn't God. The man is your human boss or the man is the company that you work for. The man is the government or whatever it is for you. And God says a creation identity will get your heart right even in the work that you do. You know, this week I got a couple of emails from dear friends who were sharing with me some of the good things that their company has done. And both of these emails, I got them separately, these guys don't know each other, are um, from, you know, Christian men who love the Lord and are following him 
And the work they do is not running a church like I do or anything like that. They're just out there in the world doing their thing. And they both sent me an email talking about some of their recent accomplishments. The one guy's job is that he manufactures, he owns a few companies that manufactures medical device equipment. And he just found out that the catheters that they make are actually saving lives. He sent me a bunch of stories of little children with cancer who can't endure to have a catheter in that long because of their small little arms and how the ones that they've invented can be uh, put in there for weeks on end without infection and work, and it's literally saving lives. And then the other guy sent me an email. This was like on the opposite end of the spectrum. This guy builds racetracks, private racetracks, uh, and one of them is in California, and his racetrack just won, and I quote, the top global motorsports facility award. I didn't even know that existed, but he just won that award. And again, if you didn't know any better, some of you are like you're thinking right now, you think, well, okay, so they're bragging about their secular accomplishments. See, I don't see it that way. I, I, I spiritualize this in a good way. This isn't secular stuff. These are Christian men or women living out their creation identity. They're giving full praise and glory to God. They're following Jesus. They have a deep sense of who they are. They take great satisfaction in their work and the accomplishments that come with it and even the fact that it helps people and serves a purpose in this world. A creation identity gets you back to that kind of an identity. And then as you're chewing on that, just notice to me very quickly a, a second example because maybe you don't relate to the vocational one. Uh, think of your relational life. Just think of how in your daily life you view the people around you. And let me ask you a question. And I don't mean people like your wife and kids because this doesn't count. I'm talking about people like service providers and coworkers or fellow students or whatever it is, just those that you bump into every day. And I want to ask you a very critical question. Do you view them from your creation identity as valuable creations of God complete with an image-bearing soul inside of them that is worthy of dignity and care? Or do you see them as many in our world see them, and that is as resources at your disposal, entities that are designed to help you get things done, or if they get in your way, need to be removed so that you can get on with your life? How do you view the people around you? You see, the vast majority of people in our modern world, I'm telling you this is empirically true, view others, especially others that they're not in intimate relationship with, like others at work and service providers and all that, as resources at their disposal, not as intimate creations of God worthy of dignity and respect. And it all comes back to what your creation identity is. Uh, Eugene Peterson and his famous book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places, makes this distinction when he says that we live in a culture today that truly sees people as resources to be harnessed and used rather than as souls with bodies who need to be cared for and spoken truth to. And in speaking about this idea of a resource in light of people, listen to what he says. This is good in his book. He says, and I quote, I can still remember how jarring that word resource sounded to me when I first heard it 40 years ago by a man who was giving me direction in helping me start my new congregation. 
He kept pushing me to identify the resource people that I could use in my church work. And then I noticed that he was using the word as a verb. He frequently offered to resource the church board, resource the financial committee, resource our planning committee. Peterson says, but resource identifies a person as something to be used. There's nothing personal to a resource. It is a thing, stuff, a function. He says, use the word long enough and it begins to change the way we view a person. It started out harmlessly enough as a metaphor and as such we found it useful, I guess. But when it becomes habitual, it erodes our sense of this person as a soul, relational at core and God dimensioned. And I think he's exactly right, gang. You and I have bought into a bad bill of goods in our culture today. We tend to see people not as God sees them, as wonderful creations made in his image. We see them as either people who are going to help us get done what we need to get done. They're either on our team or they're off our team. And if they're off our team, then they need to be pushed out of the way. James nailed it years ago in James 3, verses 9 and 10, when he said, with it, meaning our mouth, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men, watch this, who have been made in the likeness of God, creation identity. From the same mouth come both blessings and cursings. My brothers, these things ought not to be this way. But 2,000 years later, they still are. (laughs) And you and I have a chance to get back to a creation identity through following the Lord. Are you starting to see that this idea of a creation identity affects everything? It affects your work, it affects your relationships. Are you ready for this? It affects almost every other area of your life. It affects how, it affects how you view your masculinity and femininity, which is under attack in our culture today. Creation identity tells you that you are uniquely made in the image of God with a gender. It tells you how to approach and raise your kids because a creation identity tells you that God has patterned the family after himself with a father and a son and a spirit. It tells you even how we need to view and treat this earth. You know, Christians are not known for being the most environmentally friendly people. Listen to me, gang. We should because we're the ones who have been told on like page one of the Bible that we have been given dominion over this earth and we're to care for it and to cultivate it and to keep it and to keep it well. Are you starting to see all of this flows from the Bible, not from Hollywood. It flows from the Bible, not from politics. You and I have been given a creation identity and it's an amazing thing. Cultivate and keep. Keep relationships where they should be. Seeing people in the image of God and then everything else. And I'm telling you, coming back to Jesus and his word gets you back to a creation identity. We're gonna move on here in a second, but much of this series has been about helping you learn about your creation identity and not be mugged by the mirror or pickpocketed by the past or have it stolen by success. Think of all the themes we went through. I've simply been taking the word and helping you get back to a creation identity. And if you don't hear anything else today, hear this. Jesus wants to return your identity to you. He made you. 
He was there in your mother's womb when you were being formed, the Bible says. And as a result of that, he knows the identity that he wants you to have, but you gotta follow him. Now, uh, we need to shift gears right now and move into second gear, which is really more like fifth gear because we're gonna take off here right now. Notice the a second identity that Jesus offers us, and this is actually even more important than a creation one, and that is that following Jesus offers us a redemption identity. And this one's powerful and life-altering. Look at how Ephesians chapter one, verse seven states this to us. This is a really good sum of the redemption identity that we get through following Jesus. It says, in him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I could do an entire series of messages on this one verse in the Bible. Did you know that? And there are four themes here that we need to quickly, quickly point out because they help us fall into place this idea of a redemption identity. Those four themes are redemption, forgiveness, sin or trespasses, and grace. And when you understand those four things, you are ready to get a redemption identity. Uh, First, notice with me that for those who have trusted Christ as Lord and Savior, he now offers us or gives us redemption. That word redemption simply means a ransom has been paid. You've been redeemed from something. It carries the picture that you were once held captive, but now a price has been paid and you're set free, kind of like a bail bondsman or something like that. And in a spiritual context, what is it that has held you captive? Well, that's the second theme here. It's your trespasses or your sins. Again, this is the one that, if there's anything that that Christians and Hollywood agree on, and we're seeing this in black and white today, no pun intended, is um, is that we're all sinners in massive need of grace. I I, I don't know what you make right now of all that's going on in Hollywood, but I kind of, I'm just standing back and, and taking it all in that, that Hollywood that has lived a sexually decadent existence for decades on end with almost no sexual morals at all is now screaming about all the sexual abuse that's happening in Hollywood. Is it just me or does that seem kind of ironic that that's happening? And, and same in the realm of politics. And yet I have compassion on it. It just reminds me that as Christians, we shouldn't say, see, see, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. That's not what we should do. We should say, hmm, I guess we're all sinners. I guess we all have committed trespasses. I guess we're all in need of grace. See, the world doesn't want to admit this. They don't want to admit that they really are a sinful, fallen mess that they're unable to live up to God's standards, which by the way is perfect holiness, and we all fall short and we all need redemption. We all need forgiveness. And let's personalize it for you. I hope, by the fact that you're even here today or at Cactus Venue or Chapel or watching online, that, that, that you realize that at the very least, even if you have yet to experience redemption, we're gonna give you a chance at that in a minute, that at the very least you are sinful and fallen and that you are in need of some form of grace. As I've joked for years, if you don't believe that, ask your wife. 
Ask your husband, ask your kids, ask your neighbors. You know who you don't want to ask? Don't ask your fellow buddy at the bar because they never tell you the truth about anything. They're not the ones who are gonna do that. They're your drinking buddies or whatever you have or the guy at the club or your tennis partner or your biking. They're not gonna tell you that. No, ask somebody who'll tell you the truth. Am I fallen? Am I sinful? Am I less than perfect? They're gonna tell you yes. And that's the Bible's point is that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God and something needs to be done about it. We need to be redeemed. We need forgiveness. Now watch this. And what is it that brings us redemption and forgiveness? The riches of his, meaning Jesus's grace. And that word grace could not be more powerful. The gospel is this gang. The gospel says God loves you and made you, but that you are fallen and separated from him. But that in his grace, 2,000 years ago, he broke into this world, became a man in Jesus Christ, went to a wooden cross, died on that cross. Now, this is what many people don't understand, but it's core to the gospel. When he died on that cross, he was paying the penalty that you should have paid. That's where redemption was being accomplished and applied. That when he died on that cross, he bore your sin and bore my sin so that we might have the potential to be forgiven. And you say, what do you mean potential? Well, it doesn't become real. It doesn't become applied to your life until you take the next and final step. And that is to trust him, to believe, to have faith. The core to the gospel outside of Jesus dying on a cross for our sins all comes back to faith. Faith in Jesus Christ and his grace for you. That's how you get a redemption identity. And the absolutely cool thing about this is, now don't miss this gang, is that no matter how old you are, no matter how much sinful water has gone under the bridge of your life, no matter how far you've strayed, no matter how many times you promised to be good and failed, because you can't do it on your own, it's futile, it's never too late to choose a redemption identity, either for the first time or to come back to that identity once again. Again, to keep consistent with our theme today, what the world can steal from you, Jesus wants to return to you. And, and he's all about this redemption identity. I, I met, met with a guy uh, this week. I did a, a home visit to a, a dear friend who's been, uh, really hit some hard times. He's in his early 70s, but his body is just really struggling. And he's had multiple heart uh, surgeries and, and other complications, some small strokes, and he's now recovering and was in one of these homes where they can give him the assistance and care that he needs as he recovers. And obviously he's been dealing with some discouragement and maybe even some depression. And so we went outside on the back porch and we were chatting just about all the things that he was struggling with physically. And then we just started talking about life. And he said to me, you know, one of the things that, 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 that is so hard for me to deal with in life, the most difficult thing, is all the terrible things that I've done. How I've messed up my marriage and my kids and my family and the guilt that I live with under that. And I know some of you might not relate to that, but I think many of us can. And he says, I, 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 and you know, even as a Christian, I'm just under such weight from that guilt every day. Now, this is my wheelhouse. I looked at my buddy and I leaned forward. And I said, let's talk about that one right now. And I said to him, I said, well, what has God done for you to help you deal with your guilt? Now, wouldn't that be the right question? 
A secular counselor wouldn't ask that question. They'd want to delve into your history and delve into your emotions and thoughts and help you, you know, somehow mentally be able to get over your guilt or experientially, you know, do that. And, and there's some merit to all of that. But, but as a pastor, my biggest concern is what's this dude's theology? What does he believe about God? And I said, tell me about God and tell me about Jesus and what has he done to alleviate any guilt for you? And his answer was spot on. It made my day. He looked at me, and he's pretty new to the faith. He's only been here at our church for a few years, and before that, didn't have much of a spiritual life. And he said to me, well, I've learned in the last few years that Jesus Christ is the one who died for my sin, and through his death and my faith has taken away my sin and guilt. Let me ask you guys a question. Is that the right answer or not? But I didn't want to stop there. So I said to my friend, I said, you know, our, our, our second graders give that answer too in Sunday school. So my question for you is, do you really believe that? Or are you just parroting the right response? Do you really believe that? Or are you just going with the Scottsdale Bible line? And he looked at me and he said, I really, really believe that. And the only thing I can do with him at that point is encourage him in the gospel. And then I grabbed his hands and we prayed that God would continue to hammer home to his soul, that he truly has been set free, and that freedom now is his in Christ. What was I trying to do with my friend? I was trying to help cement in his life, and some of you need this as well, a redemption identity that he has. Some of you have never forgiven yourselves for the things that you have done. Even though you've accepted Christ, even though you believe in Christ, you have never let go of your past. And here's why, maybe this will help explain it to you, is that God has given you a redemption identity and you've never lived with it long enough. You've spoken the right words, you've prayed the right prayer, you go to church every week, but you've never really lived every day, every moment of the, of the day with this redemption identity that is now yours in Jesus Christ. You've never bathed your emotions in it, your thoughts in it, your will in it. And again, guys, this is not a pipe dream for me. I live this stuff. This is why I'm just like you. My dear wife is here for this sermon here today. She would tell you, I still sin. I still struggle. I'm still under the burden of guilt just like many of you are. And you know what I do every day? I wake up and as I'm coming into consciousness, I discipline my mind to think, boy, are you a successful mega church pastor. <laughs> no, I don't do that. Wouldn't that be just the dumbest thing in the world to try to say, yeah, I feel like a mess inside, so I think I'll bolster myself with my successes as a pastor. God would laugh at that one. No, I wake up every day and as I'm coming into consciousness, I say, thank you, God, for another day. Thank you for saving my pathetic soul. Thank you, as Jeremiah says in Lamentations 3, that your mercies are new every morning. So that even the things that I dreamt about that are sinful, you ever dreamt about sinful things? I do. Some of them involve you. And, uh, and, and, and no, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. I, I dream about those things. I did have a dream about Neil the other night, but it was a good one. So I, uh, I, I, you know, dreams are wacky and sometimes I'm disturbed by my dreams and before my feet even get out of bed, I thank God that the blood of his son Jesus 
covers all of my sins and that the slate is wiped clean and that though my sins used to be red as scarlet, as Isaiah the prophet says, they are now white as snow. I mean, that's what God, God says, bathe yourself, Jamie, every day in this redemption identity that is yours. Bathe yourself in the redemption that I've given you and watch your life change. That what the world and flesh can steal, Jesus can return. And a creation identity that affects your work and relationships, a redemption identity that goes deeper than anything humanly possible, allowing us to know God and the forgiveness he offers. And then very quickly, because we're going to end our service today with a very special time of commitment. But before that, very quickly, there is one more identity that Jesus can and will offer us, restore to us. And here's the good news. None of us have this identity yet. And the reason I say it's good news is that the reason that you don't have this identity yet, Richard, you're my front row here. The reason you don't have this third identity yet is because you're not dead. So that's good news, right? And this is the identity we're talking about. And that's that following Jesus offers you a final and a future identity on the other side but only for followers of Jesus. Look at how the Bible puts this. This is amazing language. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, meaning all die. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This sounds like a complicated passage. It's really not. It's really simple. But what it's simply saying here is that not everybody is going to die. Most of us will. But that someday Jesus is going to come back. We call it the second coming of Christ. And there will be a trumpet sound when he comes back. And those that are alive and know him are obviously going to see him. But watch this. The dead will also be raised at that time, meaning those who have died and have fallen asleep in Christ. And of those, whether alive or dead, now watch this, they will all be, say the word with me, changed. In other words, there will be a change coming for you, a new identity for you, when Jesus returns and when you're with him in heaven. And the two things you want to notice about this change is it will happen immediately in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, and it will be permanent. It uses the word imperishable, never to change or fade. And people ask me all the time, you know, well, what will that change be? What will heaven be like? What will my new, my new identity be? Well, we actually know a lot more than most people want to talk about because we don't like to talk about our death. But, but here's some of the things that you can anticipate in heaven. First, the 100% presence of Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians 4, you will be with the Lord forever. Secondly, no more tears. No more emotional, physical, mental, or relational pain. Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe away all of our tears. I love this third one. You're going to have a new, and this is what Corinthians is getting after, you will have a new, perfect, and complete body. You will be raised with a body imperishable in glory and in power. So I've said for years, you know what? There's going to be no gyms in heaven. Do we all understand that? 
You're not going to be watching TV in heaven and see a commercial on the next diet. You're not going to need a diet in heaven because you're going to have a perfect body that doesn't need a health club, doesn't need a diet. It's your new identity. Uh, this will blow you away. Fourth, you will have full knowledge, meaning all of your questions will be answered. First Corinthians 13, 12, then I shall know fully. You'll be rewarded for the life you live. First Corinthians 3, 14, you shall receive a reward. And part of that reward might be profound words of affirmation. Matthew 25, 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, heaven's gonna be an amazing uh, amazing thing. But we're given tastes of it here on what it's going to be like. But don't miss, because we're posturing this right today. It builds upon your creation identity, your redemption identity in Jesus, and it's your final future identity that you're preparing yourself for now. And this is why I tease some of you when I don't see you singing in church, especially some of you men. You know, I'll I mention to you casually, hey, why don't you sing in church? Well, I don't like the songs and I'm just here for the sermon. And I go, man, heaven's gonna be a rude awakening for you. <laughs> because honestly, in heaven, you're not gonna sit there and say, I don't like this song. And it's not because of the song. You're not gonna say that because you're gonna have a redeemed mind and a redeemed body. You're never going to whine again in heaven. I mean, it's hard for some of you men to imagine that, but it's true. You're never going to whine again. That's the identity that is reserved for us in eternity. So let's wrap it up. You got a creation identity that affects your work, your relationships, everything. You got a redemption identity, the full forgiveness of your sins that's leading you to a final and future identity. You know, I marvel that some people say the Christian life is boring. It's only boring by elitists in this world who just want to have their decadent fun this side of heaven. No, the Christian life is the most exciting adventure we could ever be on. And it all centers around Jesus. We're going to release the... Uh, campuses or cactus campus and then the venue and the chapel here in just a minute to engage in a time of commitment as their own congregations before I do that because we're going to do that here in Shea here's what I've been praying about really for a few months in a heightened way this week and that's that I think a good cap to this series would be to give us all the opportunity if needed to commit to the Lord when it comes to what our identity really is. And, and for those of you who've been through one of our commitment times, you know what I'm gonna ask you to do, and I'm gonna ask you to do at the campuses and venues, I'm gonna ask you to come forward. I'm gonna ask you to bodily get up and come forward to receive a time of prayer to either for the very first time, for some of you, to receive a redemption identity, or for some of you who have wandered and now need to, to return to the identity that God has for you, we're gonna ask you to come forward as well. But we're gonna enter, enter into a very holy personal time of commitment to the Lord. So if he's been knocking on your door, if he's been tapping on your shoulder, if he's been prompting your heart, we're gonna address that right now. So as we dismiss the other campuses, let's pray briefly and then we'll do our stuff here at Shea. Father, I thank you that you love us, each one of us, more than we could ever imagine. And that you love us enough to instill in us an identity at birth and then an identity that we can find even more power and infusion in through our redemption that finally awaits what eternity will be. 
And Father, I pray that as we each process this now individually for our own lives, that you speak to us, speak to our minds and hearts. May we not be shy to commit to you if you're tapping on our shoulder. And Lord, may you be pleased with what we're about to do here and at Cactus Venue and Chapel. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.